Welcome back to the Daring Poppy channel everyone. It's exciting to be back with you. Especially as we begin to witness our mainstream media finally starting to take a hard line when questioning politicians. Once again I applaud Duncan Garner for the way he questioned our Prime Minister last week on the AM show. Long may that continue. Um, you will find a link for that in episode 9. I call it the pulling the transparency card. I remain confident that the information I am disseminating on this channel will continue to make more and more sense as we collectively witness what's be beginning to play out on the world stage. It is and always will be my intention to be of assistance in the most constructive way possible, given the most important need of the hour. This tall poppy hopes the global info war will be laid bare here on the Steering Poppy channel, and by that I mean uncovered. Other definitions are laid naked or raw. Incidentally, raw is war spelt backwards. So that's rather fitting, isn't it? So with that thought in mind, let's get down to the nitty and gritty, the what, when, where, why and hows of the suffrage movement. It is an honour to finally report on the courageous worldwide plight of this woman's movement, especially as this timing has mixed in with the wonderful Mother's Day energy field. Before we begin, let me follow through on my earlier references to the Suffragette Railway Saga. The memory I was sharing was during one of my trips to our southern Emerald Isle, or the mainland as our South Islanders like to call it. As it turns out, I might owe my listeners an apology, because the only woman's railway protest I have been able to retrieve off the internet was in Nelson back in 1955. It was a week-long sit-in that ended in arrests, convictions and fines. I have posted that link for any curious listeners. If nothing else, it was good clickbait, as they call it. Before I continue, let me reiterate, as outlined in detail in my first two episodes, Mother of a Mission and Show and Tell Time. I have been deeply troubled by the insidious social erosion transpiring in New Zealand, especially the last two decades. I speak of the Trojan horses, as I call them, that have, been wheel that have wheeled in the misery and decay. The most obvious example being the United Nations. Please listen out as the UN gets a special mention at the end of my report. So without further ado, let's cast our mind's eye back to that historical moment in 1893 when New Zealand became the first country in the world to grant women the right to vote. This moment in time was shaped by two main themes. Equal political rights for women and a determination to use these rights 
for the moral reform of society through, for example, the prohibition of alcohol. Kate Shepherd was the most prominent member of the women's suffrage movement in New Zealand and our country's most famous suffragist. She was born in Liverpool, England in 1847 and immigrated to New Zealand with her family in 1868. Kate founded the Women's Christian Temperance Union in 1885. Two years later, she became, became the leader of the New Zealand suffragettes. The suffrage movement spanned across continents. If you are unaware of this topic, please take time to delve deeper. Now would be a good time for any international listeners to do some research regarding your own country's suffrage plight. Essentially, these foremothers were lobbying for the right of women to vote in elections. Beginning in the mid-19th century, aside from the work being done by women for broad-based economic and political equality and for social reforms, women sought to change voting laws to allow them to vote. National and international organisations formed to coordinate efforts towards that objective. Aside from regulations around alcohol consumption as mentioned, the next pressing concerns were raising the legal age of sexual consent from 12 to 21 and halting the spread of sexually transmitted disease. By the early 1890s, opponents of the women's suffrage had begun to mobilise. They warned that any disturbance of the natural gender roles of men and women might have terrible consequences. The liquor industry, fearful that women would support growing demands for the prohibition of alcohol, needed to rally the troops. These friends of the liquor industry lobbied sympathetic members of parliament and organised their own counter-petitions. Thankfully, all resistance failed, and on the 19th of September, 1893, women were officially granted the right to vote in New Zealand. The third petition of 32,000 signatures was successful. This petition represented almost one quarter of the adult, adult European female population of New Zealand. Prime Minister Seddon and others again tried to torpedo the bill by various underhand tactics, but this time their interference backfired. Two opposition councillors who had previously opposed women's suffrage changed their votes to embarrass Seddon. On the 8th of September 1893, the bill was passed by 20 votes to 18. So we see how close that came. Um, congratulations poured in from around the world. One wrote that New Zealand's achievement gave new hope and life to all women struggling from emancipation. In 1892, the New Zealand Women's Franchise League had been established first in Dunedin and later elsewhere. 
These groups were set up to provide a non-temperance lobby for the vote. They ran from 1892 to 1894. Once the vote was won in 1893, groups were established to educate women politically. In 1896, Kate Shepherd went on to establish the National Women's Council of New Zealand and being elected president, held their first conference in Christchurch in 1896. Its aim was to unite all organised societies of women for mutual counsel and cooperation and in the attainment of justice and freedom for women. and for all that makes for the good of humanity. The National Council of Women sought to make New Zealand society more moral in many ways. I've listed a few of them here. By raising the age for legal sexual intercourse, as I mentioned before, it was 12 back in the day, teaching scientific temperance in schools, establishing homes for habitual drunkards, more rigorously enforcing the liquor laws, lobbying for the criminalisation of incest, that bill finally passed into law in 1900. It asked for free and longer education for children and better care of those who were disadvantaged. Consistent with its middle-class ethic of self-improvement, the National Council of Women considered that its duty to the unfit was to engender self-respect by fostering independence. Eventually, the early National Council of Women was overwhelmed by despair, illness or death of several of its leading activists. Once enfranchised, most women appeared to have become apathetic and indifferent to political questions. The 1902 convention in Napier was the last. The council went into recess four years later. Over the next decade, there was little sign of a women's movement in New Zealand. The leading organisation of the 1890s, the Women's Christian Temperance Union, which almost alone maintained its distinctive blend of temperance and feminism, now focused on prohibition. However, the catalyst of World War I precipitated a revival of the women's movement in New Zealand. In 1916, Christina Henderson, Kate Shepard and writer Jessie Mackay set in motion plans to reactivate the council. In 1918, in a mood of post-war optimism, the ten, the, the, beg your pardon, the ten delegates of a reconstituted National Council of Women listened as lawyer Alan Melville read a keynote address by Kate Shepard. The first full conference of the new National Council of Women occurred in the following year. These women were concerned at the apparent moral decline of the country's youth. From the start, the revived council, though appreciably less radical than its predecessor, 
was equally political in its aim. The 1919 conference set up an advisory or intelligence committee of Wellington members to advise on parliamentary business requiring immediate attention. The forerunner of the Parliamentary Watch Committee. In the interwar period, the Council, though disappointed at the delay before women gained seats in Parliament, steadily advocated the appointment of women as justices of the peace, jurors and police. Later, the aim was to increase the number of women on statutory bodies and in local and central government. Newer organisations such as the Society for the Protection of Women and Children and the Plunkett Movement reinforced a domestic maternal concept of womanhood. It was argued that the New Zealand woman's vote was already bearing fruit in legislation favourable to women. The inference taken was that there was no need of feminist action. This marked the end of one era and the beginning of another. The rights of the wife had been an ongoing concern of the National Council of Women. From the first call for economic independence in 1896 to the suffrage centennial anniversary in 1993, equal rights in the guardianship of children was one issue. Equality in divorce and adequate sustenance for the divorced wife another. By the early 1990s, concerns focused on the security of de facto wives when a relationship ended. Closely linked was concern for mothers and children. From the turn of the century, the NCW constantly scrutinised the provision of maternity services, whether in hospital or by midwives at home, and supported the work of the Plunkett Society. Given the wide range of organisations in the National Council of Women, issues of reproductive rights were inevitably sensitive. While the Council approved family planning within marriage in 1956, debate continued for 30 years on the availability of contraceptives to young people outside marriage. The means of political activity also changed over the years. Petitions, deputations and telegram campaigns gave way to carefully prepared submissions to relevant authorities. From 1968 on, these came from, national, from the National Council of Women as a whole rather than individual branches. On issues of special concern, such as equal pay or the changing role of women in New Zealand society, the National Council of Women published the results of its research. The Council found new allies in the Human Rights Commission from 1977 and the Ministry of Women's Affairs from 1895. International links were man maintained through the International Council of Women, the ICW, an NGO founded in 1888. NGO means a um, non-government organisation. While it has tended to be disparaged by both the very conservative and the very radical, the National Council of Women 
could still claim to be the voice of thousands of women in New Zealand as it approached its centenary in 1996. Women's health was a topic of concern in the early 1990s, and NCW was active in promoting well-woman clinics and screening for breast and cervical cancer. The United Nations encouraged women's suffrage in the years following World War II, and the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women, 1979, identifies it as a basic right. Well, that about winds up that little expose, people. I'll just reiterate there that that's the United Nations encouraging women's suffrage in the years that followed World War II. I'll repeat that convention. It's on the elimination of all forms of discrimination against women, 1979. A basic right. Did you get that? Down under, we call it the Clayton's right. It's the right you have when you don't have a right. So the question goes begging. If we truly honoured and celebrated this grand legacy of our stoic foremothers, we would be reaping the fruit of those endeavours. The legacy of moral reform would surely be rippling on down through the generations. I hope a shocking realisation is setting in with you precious listeners out there. Life in New Zealand is far from decent. The complete opposite has manifested. The majority of men, women, infants and youth in our nation are caught in a web of domestic violence, abuse, depression and suicide. Can I, so, can I be so bold as to call it cultural debauchery? My takeaway from this fresh examination of New Zealand's cultural heritage is the liquor industry is alive and well 128 years on. Bear in mind, these are the same weak-minded fools who stopped instilling the merit of hand-washing. Why else would we be having national and international advertisements and campaigning to maintain an adequate level of hygiene in the 21st century? Personally, I find it laughable, and on a sad level, I find it completely undignified. What the bleep went wrong? We'll savour this latest truth pod, folks. I tr trust that it will act as a panacea in the big scheme of things. I fully intend to follow straight on with the essence of the National Council of Women. My next expose will address the legacy of New Zealand's three female Prime Ministers, Jenny Shipley, Helen Clark and Jacinda Ardern. So stand by for that. In closing, I would like to recite the Lord's Prayer, Psalm 23, written by Bobby McFerrin and dedicated to my mother. I'm also linking um, a beautiful Il Devo piece of music um, called Ave Maria, so savour that. And in the meantime, this is the Tall Poppy signing off for now and wishing you all outrageous wisdom, joy, peace and abundance.
The Lord is my shepherd. I have all I need. She makes me lie down in green meadows, beside the still waters. She will lead. She restores my soul. She rights my wrongs. She leads me in a path of good things and fills my heart with songs. Even though I walk through a darkened, dreary land, there is nothing that can shake me. She has said she won't forsake me. I'm in her hand. She sets a table before me in the presence of my foes. She anoints my head with oil and my cup overflows. Surely, surely goodness and kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will live in her house forever, forever and ever. Glory be to our mother and daughter and to the Holy of Holies, as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen.